Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Mary Jane Rubenstein about her great new book, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, published with Columbia University Press in 2014. Where can the boundaries of science, philosophy, and religion be drawn? Questioning the nature of the universe is an excellent place to rethink how these categories have been deployed across time. In this beautifully written and beautifully designed book, Mary Jane Rubenstein offers a genealogy of multiple world cosmologies that demonstrate the pliability of these terms and the debated relationship between science and religion. She wonders why there's a proliferation of multiverse theoretical cosmologies by contemporary scientists. While the cosmos are generally considered to be singular and finite, many well-respected physicists explain the universe's complexities as evidence of a multiverse. These explanations argue that our world is just one of the infinite numbers of universes existing simultaneously. Worlds Without End shows that multiple world cosmologies have had currency among many thinkers for over 2,500 years. What draws philosophers, religious practitioners, and scientists together on these questions is their appeal to metaphysical postulates, which serve as pseudo-theologies for the contemporary age. In our conversation, we discuss the Greek philosophical tradition of Plato, Aristotle, the Atomist, and Stoics, medieval Christian interpreters such as Thomas Aquinas, Nicholas of Cusa, Giordano Bruno, the telescopic discoveries of Galileo, René Descartes, Isaac Newton, Immanuel Kant, the Big Bang debate, cosmic shredding, the fine-tuning problem, dark energy, inflationary cosmology, string theory, quantum mechanics, and intelligent design, among many, many other things. It really was a pleasure speaking with Mary Jane Rubenstein and reading her wonderful book, Worlds Without End. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Without further ado, here's the interview. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Th- thank you, Mary Jane, for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a really wonderful book. I, I really enjoyed this genealogical approach where you, you take this now kind of very popular conception of the multiverse and really place it into these kind of larger conversations that have been going on for for centuries. But before we get into the content of the book, uh, I really would love if you could situate yourself in the, the study of religion. How did you get interested in religious studies? Uh, perhaps people that uh, have been influential in perhaps either your approach or the topics you study. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, of course. Thanks. Um, I got into religious studies uh, by accident. I think that that's more more common than um, than one might like to imagine. Um, I uh, was thrown accidentally into a an introduction to religion class uh, my freshman year of college, um, having been trying to get into some theater class and it didn't fit in my schedule. And the only thing that fit was religion, and I didn't know what it meant to study religion. Um, and it was one of these, um, you know, how sometimes uh, religious studies courses are structured around sort of. Uh, the world religions, and then other times they're structured more sort of theoretically and methodologically. Um, and it was one of those classes. It was a sort of theory and method heavy class um, that looked at particular case studies, um, but that was really a kind of um, what I would think of as, as a highly philosophical class. 
Um, and I was just totally transfixed by it. Um, and, you know, fell in love, I guess, typically uh, with Kierkegaard and Tillich um, and these, you know, radical Protestant thinkers who were trying to think past the limits of the thinkable um, and and just thought pretty, pretty clearly, uh, I guess, in that first semester, like this is the stuff that I would like ideally to do forever. Like I'd like to figure out <laughs> what kind of job I could have out there in the world that would let me read Fear and Trembling all the time. Like what could I do to do that? Great. Um, and then so, yeah. Uh, yeah, go on. So so then you decided to continue your studies, obviously? I did. Um, I, so I, I, I majored in religion. Um, and again, the, the department at the institution where I was an undergraduate uh, was, was highly theoretically organized. Um, it, was, it, was, it was basically a major in post-structuralist philosophy, actually, with like a little bit of religious studies thrown in. Um, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a fellowship to spend a couple of years studying in Cambridge um, and signed up to get a master's degree in theology, thinking, of course, theology was the same thing as religious studies um, and had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and so I got overseas and had to learn really quickly, you know, with my my sense of the canon had been, you know, Tillich and Kierkegaard and then and then like Lacan and Judith Butler and Kristeva. Um, and then it turned out that there were these guys named Augustine and Anselm and like even Kant, whom I had just not dealt with at all. Um, so I had to had to figure out what the heck theology was um, and, and was really approached it from a religious studies um, background. So I guess I guess uh, the the the. the terrain uh that i got i got sort of trained up in um was somewhere between theory method and religion continental philosophy and the sort of history of uh theology and western philosophy great now this book is your second book and uh i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what began you thinking about uh, multiple world cosmologies. You you mention in I think the introduction or somewhere that uh, Clayton Crockett asked you to to, to right. join him in a conference. Um, could you talk a little bit about where where did this project begin to emerge, and then what what made you think this should be a book length project, and then how you approach that? Thanks. Yeah. There. I mean. So right. So there's the the I guess. If I were if I were doing this, if I were responding to this in any kind of uh, professional, formal, or responsible way, I would probably talk about um, my my again this this attraction to mine um, toward thinkers and now scientists who operate at the limits of the imaginable, right? So and and from there you can kind of draw. A fairly, I mean, a, a wiggly line, but some sort of line uh, between thinkers like Kierkegaard and Heidegger and Derrida um, and contemporary cosmologists who are attempting to sort of imagine the unimaginable and push out the limits of um, of the possible um, and the representable. And the, um, so that would be the responsible way to answer. It. Yeah, the irresponsible way is to say once again, like this was a big accident, um, and Clayton had been um, asking me for for weeks to uh, join him in Central Arkansas uh, at a conference on theology and energy, and I I responded no, you know, as you know, I don't do theology, and also I know nothing about energy. Like I barely know how my house is heated. I don't. I have <laughs> nothing to say about energy. I have no, um, and. And he, I, so I, I respectfully wrote, no thanks, you know, you're wonderful, but no thank you. And Clayton wrote back the next day and said, please come. 
And I wrote back and said, no, no, thank you. I really can't. He wrote back to me for a week, every day for a week saying, just come, just come up with something. So finally, just to, because I was sick of answering the emails, I told him I would come. Um, and that weekend happened to be reading a, um, a piece in the New York Times magazine um, by Dennis Overby on he's, he's the, the sort of he does popular writing uh, for the Times on um, mainly on physics and cosmology. Um, and so he was writing about this thing, this substance, this weird, mysterious substance called dark energy. Um, which is the, the um, well, it's hard to give it a noun, but um, it seems to be the pressure of empty space that is causing the universe not only to expand, right? We've known since the 30s, really, and definitively since the 60s, that the universe is expanding, but to actually to, to accelerate its expansion. Um, and it was a total, discovering it was a total surprise for the researchers who found it. Um, they were horrified by it, and they gave it this funny name, Dark Energy. And I started thinking that the, the sort of metaphorics in operation surrounding this term and the way that the physicists were talking about it as creepy or as hellish or as just unbearable uh, were just fascinating on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, sounded highly theological, that there was something about... Um, the surprise, the astonishment of this thing, the astonishment that the universe might somehow be racing beyond the universe's own capacity to hold itself in. And I thought, well, why did they, why did they assume the universe could hold itself in, right? Why, why would they assume that the expansion of the universe would somehow be benevolently regulated by the universe itself? There seemed to be, to me, some kind of uh, leftover ontotheological longing for some um, reciprocity of universal procession on the one hand and return on the other hand, that it, you know, all things would, would proceed from and to some kind of alpha and omega. So I started just, uh, you know, reading up as much as I possibly could on dark energy and trying to attend to the way that scientists were talking about this stuff. Um, and then um, read it in relation to, um, well, in, initially, uh, in relation to uh, Eastern Orthodox theologies of, uh, of procession and return, the, the so-called energies of God. There's something very interesting about this term energy um, and its overlap here between uh, physics and theology. Um, and then just the more that I was, uh, the more that I read about dark energy, the more I started tumbling into uh, writings about the multiverse. Um, so it was at that point that I, I was I was so in and it, it took me so long to figure out even how to make my way through this new discursive terrain that once I was in it, I really, I had a very hard time getting out and, um, and the book just sort of grew from my following um a sense that there was something bizarrely and even sort of perversely going on, uh, perversely theological going on in contemporary cosmology. Now, um, the book centers around this idea of, of, of a multiverse, um, right. which, I mean, basically you, you, you explain in various ways throughout the whole book, but uh, to give us kind of a starting point, um, when when people use the word multiverse today, I guess um, what what are they thinking about? Can you kind of just give us a a, a blurry lined definition? I guess. 
Sure. Yeah. Blurry line definition at the moment. So at the moment, what the term multiverse refers to um, is a hypothetical compendium. So there's no there's no proof that there's a multiverse. There's no consensus that there's a multiverse. Um, most physicists are pretty convinced that there is. But it's a hypothetical compendium of universes, period. Um, so then that we, then we have to ask what a universe is. Um, a universe is the um collection of space-time centered on any given point in space-time that covers basically everything you can see from wherever you are. Uh, So you may have seen images of uh, what's called our Hubble volume or our light cone. It's basically um, the... uh, a sphere drawn around any given point that shows all the stuff we can see from here, which is to say the space time um, accessible by observation to us, um, the, the, the distance as it were that light has been able to travel to us since the big bang. Um, so that's, that's known as our visible universe. Um, and then, so, so sometimes when physicists talk about the universe, they mean like everything we can see from here. Um, and then other times when they talk about the universe, they mean everything the big bang produced. So those are two different ways of talking about universe. Um, what the multiverse hypothesis says is there are more universes out there either in time or in space that look either just like us, uh, a little bit like us or absolutely nothing like us. And then from there, uh, there's all kinds of disagreement about, you know, where these multiverses are, whether they exist out there in space or out there in time. And I know, you know, this, we, we're running up against the limits of concepts here because space time, of course, are the same thing. Um, but some models of the multiverse configure other universes as like out there. Like if we could just travel faster than the speed of light, we could see them beyond the bounds of our universe. Uh, some models of the multiverse configure them more, uh, more temporally, which is to say um, after our universe unravels in some way, either in some um, big shredding or a what's called a, um, a, a big crunch or something like that, right, where we do the Big Bang backwards, um, there will be another Big Bang and another universe. Um, and there are just there are tens or hundreds of these models uh, that are some kind of negotiation of the spatial and the temporal to try to get us to sort of see how there might be um, multiple universes and in many cases even an infinite number of universes. Great. Now, uh, for contemporary cosmologists, you set up in the beginning of the book that the, I guess why this has all of a sudden become uh, a common way of thinking about the cosmos is with something called the fine-tuning problem. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, it's a, they're trying to seek how, how we make sense of the cosmos um, you know, in relation to things like intelligent design and dark energy, which you mentioned before. Um, mm-hmm. So can, can you tell us like what's going on with the cosmos that, that uh, has been discovered recently that is motivating people to think about the cosmos in this way? What is this fine tuning problem all about? Yeah, great. And it's a, so, so it's at this point that the, the question as you're, as you're suggesting, suggesting that guides this book is um, why the heck are contemporary physicists um, why do they want a multiverse? Why are they taking this seriously? I mean, the idea of an infinite number of parallel universes sounds insane. Um, or, I mean, even if it's not insane, it sounds like the stuff of, 
you know, our most fantastic science fiction, um, our most fantastic films and sort of Borgesian uh, uh, short stories, which is absolutely wonderful, but doesn't sound like what we think of as contemporary observation-based Popperian um, modern science. So what is it that has driven physicists uh, to need a multiverse? And it's in this sense that I think um, this book operates in what we could call the realm of religious studies, um, which is to say that I guess if you can make a kind of um, rough mapping um, between if you had, if you had to make right, I know that these differences are really fraught. But if you had to make a distinction between, say, constructive theology and religious studies, you'd say, all right, well, constructive theology asks um, how ought we to think about God and our relationship to God, or how ought we to think about our, um, the, the, you know, where the universe came from and our and our responsibilities to it and things like that. Um, whereas religious studies tends to ask things like why do these people ask these questions, right? Or why do those people come up with these teachings? What is it about the norms of this community that produce these kinds of stories and convictions and practices in the first place? Um, it's, it's at that register that I'm operating with respect to physicists. It's like physicists become the kind of, I don't know, what, what somebody like, like Jay-Z Smith or Russ McCutcheon would call a kind of native theologian, right? The question becomes, right, why do these folks want a multiverse so badly? And the answer, sorry, that's all the backfill to your question. Um, and the answer is, well, over the last three decades um, in particular, um, the number of so-called fine tunings of the universe have multiplied. And the fine tunings of the universe um, refer to the uh, the constants of nature. So um, the gravitational constant is a constant, right? Gravity uh, pushes down. Well, it, it holds planets in order. It, it, well, it is the warping of space and time. But right, gravity holds planets uh, in orbit around the sun. Gravity holds our feet on the ground. And it has a particular constant. Um why the question becomes, is the gravitational constant um, the value that it is? Why does it have the value that it has? Why isn't it any stronger? Why isn't it any weaker? And you can ask these about all the fundamental constants of the universe. So, for example, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force that hold molecules and nuclei together. Um, you can ask it about... Um, well, so th then this becomes the big issue. Um, dark energy, which is to say the, the pressure of empty space, is itself a constant of the universe. And with each question, why is this constant this way rather than that way? Um, we start, we physicists start to realize that if any of these constants had even like a slightly different value from the one that it has, Life as we know it, the universe as we know it, would look nothing like it looks right now. So if you imagine gravity being stronger, for example, things couldn't grow as high. Um, in fact, if gravity were even a little stronger, nothing could sort of rise up from the Earth at all. But if it were a little bit weaker, we would all go flying into orbit, which is to say we would never be here in the first place because every like sort of proto-biotic form would have been thrown off into space. So gravity seems to be calculated on this sort of razor's edge of probability, whereas if it were any stronger, we'd be squashed, and if it were any weaker, we'd be in orbit. And of course, the easiest um, 
theological answer to the question, why is gravity this way, right? Why is it so precisely calculated? Is that there is a, uh, an extra cosmic, benevolent, intelligent, and powerful God who sets gravity just right so that God's creatures can grow and flourish, right? And I think here about God as a kind of uh, mixologist or DJ, like adding just the right amount of gravity and just the right amount of strong and weak nuclear forces and making the electron just the right. Um, So in 1998, with the discovery of dark energy, um, what the quick calculations determined was that if dark energy, which is to say, again, the pressure of empty space itself, if dark energy were any stronger, then galaxies would have flown away from one another that they could they couldn't have formed in the first place, and in fact, the entire sort of proto universe would have ripped itself into shreds because, before anything could form. And if dark energy were any weaker, after the initial big bang, sort of birth of the universe, all matter wouldn't would it would have would have sort of flown away from itself so slowly that actually the expansive force would have contracted and the universe would have been drawn back into some kind of big crunch and would have been annihilated that way. So dark energy becomes a kind of like the last straw in this long list of fine-tuned constants. Um, And again, if a physicist is asking, if a fundamental physicist is asking, why is it that these things are so precariously calculated? A very easy answer is, well, there's a God out there making sure that it all works out right. Um, And... The other possibility, at least so far, has just been to say, well, don't ask the question, right? It's just dumb luck that our constants are the way they are. It's a stupid question. Let's just work with the values we're given. But if you really want to ask the question, it seems that uh, sort of an extra cosmic creator might be your only option until you get the idea of a multiverse, which is to say you can get the idea that we are not the only universe out there. So our values are not the only possible values. Rather, there are other universes out there, maybe even, this is where this becomes important, an infinite number of universes out there. And if there are an infinite number of universes out there, then each of those universes is going to try on different parameters and sort of see how the universe goes. And some universes will blow up in fiery explosions and some will sort of contract in fiery implosions and some will sort of wither away. But every once in a while, you'll get a universe whose constants are, say, just right, sort of Goldilocks principle. And we just happen to be in one of those universes. So the multiverse becomes a kind of rival and not a kind of the multiverse becomes a rival hypothesis to that of an extra cosmic creator. It becomes the way that you can explain how this universe got the way it is without having to appeal to anything like a god. Now, perhaps since you kind of uh, set up the your answer with this, we can jump to the punchline of kind of what mm-hmm. what's going on in this book more generally. And uh, so, part of what you do in the, the last section of the book, uh, and perhaps we'll return to some of the details of these multiverse theories uh, afterward, is uh, you basically argue that these multiverse cosmologies are acting metaphysically and you take a very uh, you know broad but also technical sense of what metaphysics is so can you maybe explain uh, you know how this works are are these 
pseudo-theological, perhaps? And what exactly does that mean, then, for the boundaries of these broader categories of religion and science? Uh, do they really, I, I guess, are they as static as we might imagine them to be? Right. Great. Um, yeah, let me answer that backwards. Um, I think that the categories of religion, <laughs> the categories of religion and science are in beautiful, productive and exciting flux with respect to the multiverse um, for two reasons. One is that the multiverse has a um, philosophical and theological history that I try to um, uncover um, in, in the pages of this book um, so that theology and philosophy provide the narrative, conceptual um, and theoretical conditions of possibility for even thinking a multiverse in the first place. Um, so that's one reason we get sort of what right now counts as these separate categories of religion, science, philosophy, all informing one another. Um, and then the second reason is that even in its contemporary scientific iterations, I think multiverse cosmology, multiverse cosmologies are operating um, at the very least metaphysically, um, and in many cases, uh, I, I think theologically, and one can say that pretty straightforwardly. Um, what I mean when I say that, that uh, multiverse physics operates metaphysically um, is kind of multilayered, but the, the, at, at its most basic level, multiverse cosmologies um, are operating in response to um, what is fundamentally a metaphysical question, uh, which is to say, why is the universe this way and not any other way? Or why is there a universe and not nothing? Right? Why is there something rather than nothing? This is the fundamental metaphysical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is the universe the way it is? These are metaphysical questions because the why cannot be determined from within the cosmos that is asking the question. Right? The why, the why is a metaphysical question. Um, and so... Again, there are certain physicists, most, you know, operational working physicists who don't ask these why questions. Most of my colleagues in physics and even in astronomy sort of shake their heads in disbelief at these cosmologists who are coming up with these crazy ideas. Um, they, they, and, and, and the difference is that these particular um, experimental and even theoretical physicists are not interested in that basic why are these the values that they are kinds of questions. Um, so the minute you become a physicist who needs to know why, right, needs to know why the universe is the way it is, um, you're at the very least a philosopher in addition to being a physicist. Um, and you may be, you may, you may, you may be sort of a careening into the territory, veering into the territory of theology. And, and we can talk uh, in sort of more specific ways about how that happens with different multiverse scenarios. Um, so the why I want to suggest the why is a metaphysical question. So it can only produce metaphysical answers, right? The, the only, even, even the most sort of sober and staunchly atheistic, uh, Cosmologist Steven Weinberg, Andre Linde will say, look, we only uh, we, we either have God or we have a multiverse, but we don't have any other rival. Like there's no there's no other explanation. So whether it's an infinite uh, external creator or an infinite number of parallel universes, your answer um, to your metaphysical question, why is the universe the way it is? It's metaphysical, which is to say you're positing a bunch of stuff out there that explains why the stuff in here is the way it is. Um, so that, so in, in, in the terms of metaphysics being uh, pertaining to that which lies beyond our universe, 
and very straightforwardly you can see contemporary physics is operating metaphysically. Um, that having been said, I think it also makes some interesting uh, interventions into metaphysics in the more sort of Heideggerian sense of pertaining to uh, what is, right, metaphysics always wants to ask what counts as is-ness, um, what counts as being. Um, and if traditionally the universe has meant the compendium of all that is, right? Everything that is. Uh, multiverse theories are thinking of multiple is's. They're thinking of many is's. Is. So there's, there's this pressure on um, the, the very concept of being, the very concept of is uh, at the limits of multiverse cosmology that forces, I think, uh, physicists, philosophers, um, theorists of all stripes, to think about what we mean by being and what we mean by isness and whether all that is is one or whether all that is is multiple or thrown right back upon the question of the one and the many. Um, and because it delivers us into that terrain, I think, uh, in a more sort of technical sense, um, modern cosmology is operating metaphysically as well. Great. The the What you're doing in many of the chapters here is really kind of demonstrating that while we might have a, an assumption that uh, there's a cosmic singularity, um, this idea of kind of multiple world cosmologies is not something new. Um, right. You start with the, the Greek tradition, um, Plato and Aristotle. Can, can you tell us about why they're thinking about uh, kind of mul multiple world cosmologies? In, in what context are they kind of breaking away from and, and what do they how do they how do they conceive of these cosmologies sure so right so the the uh, our sort of dominant um let me start with the beginning of the 20th century <laughs> at the beginning of the 20th century um edwin hubble discovers galaxies beyond our milky way and this is a complete shock this is an utter shock. Einstein had thought before Hubble's discovery, Einstein, um, that our entire universe was what's, what we now know to be our Milky Way, surrounded by an endless, vast void. And that was it. That we were all that was out there. Our galaxy was all that was out there. And the possibility that there were even more than one galaxy um, was absolutely astonishing to early 20th century physicists. Now, this is amazing um, because the idea of multiple that we wouldn't have called it galaxies, but multiple worlds um, and our galaxy, right, was the only world, um, has a 2,500-year-old history that got beautifully and carefully papered over by a kind of dominant reign of what I would call cosmic singularity, the idea that the world we live in is the only world. And there are a lot of contributors to this um, to this, this sort of hegemonic story about our, our world being the only world. Um, of course, lots of people like to blame uh, Christianity. The, the, the story of theology's relationship, Christian theology's relation to this is very complicated. Um, but our, the, the first, you know, the first real big, really big players here are Plato and Aristotle, who both insist that we, there is only one world. There has ever only been one world. There can only be one world. And that any other, uh, any sort of, argument to the contrary has to be wrong. Um, so, of course, one wants to ask, why were Plato and Aristotle so exercised about this co cosmic oneness thing? Like, why did they care so much? 
Um, and they were um, writing, if, as you know, lots of other schools going on in ancient Greece, right, in Athens. Um, and th- there were two uh, in particular, and, and you know, Plato was more familiar, of course, um, with the atomists. The Stoics are going to come along uh, a little bit later. Um, two major schools of thought in ancient Greek philosophy that posited that our universe was actually one of an infinite number of universes. Um, and these two were the atomists on the one hand, so Democritus, Leucippus, and then uh, later we get Epicurus, whose work is, of course, recorded in Lucretius's uh, Nature of Things. Um, so the atomists on the one hand and the Stoics on the other. The atomists are a bit older. And what the atomists are doing is asserting an infinite number of worlds just like ours. Of course, what you want to ask is, why were the atomists so excited about an infinite number of worlds? What were they reacting to? And what they were reacting to was, frankly, creation theology. Um, They were reacting to very early versions of what we might call the intelligent design hypothesis, the idea that if you just contemplate the beauty and harmony of the world around us, you have to see the hands of some benevolent creator who established the world for our benefit, right, so that it's as harmonious and beautiful and seamless as possible. And what the atomists wanted to say was, you know what, religion is making us crazy. Um, It is forcing us into all kinds of useless rituals. It keeps us in fear of the gods. It's sort of ethically disastrous. Uh, And so what they said instead was there there is actually a very straightforward way to view the world as a product of chance and and just accident rather than of any kind of design. And the way they did it, surprise, surprise, was by appealing to an infinite number of worlds. <laughs> they said that there's an infinite number of uh, atoms out there. There's an infinite number of space. These atoms collide with one another haphazardly throughout infinite time. And every once in a while, a cluster of atoms gets together successfully and makes a world sort of like ours, which lives for a time. And then it dissolves and goes on to form new worlds later. So for the atomists, there were worlds out there beyond what we could see. There were worlds before ours. There would be worlds afterwards. Um, But their primary motivation was this anti-theological stance, right? That Rather than saying there's an intelligent designer, they could say, no, no, there's just accident and there's infinity. And with those two principles combined, every once in a while, you'll get a world that works. You can probably hear, right, that the modern multiverse argument is drawing on the same conviction that the principles of accident and infinity can replace the need for any kind of benevolent God. Um, the Stoics, on the, so, so we could see that the atomists uh, really is having a, what, what are, you know, again, crudely we could call a kind of spatial multiplicity of universes. There are other worlds out there beyond the boundaries of our own. Um, the Stoics, on the other hand, um, posited that our world is the only world right now. Um, but, you know, like every once in a while, I don't know, a trillion years or so, like every once in a while. Um, the sun gets really hungry and consumes the entire world in flames, sets the whole world on fire. Uh, the world is destroyed, leaving only a tiny little bit of uh, air, a spirit, and a tiny little bit of matter. And from out of that ruined world, um, spirit, Pneuma, uh, will recreate the world again. Um, so this is a, what's known as a phoenix universe. It, you know, it, it, it is destroyed in flames and then reborn periodically. Um, and the Stoics are convinced, this is fascinating, um, that insofar as um, 
reason ordered the world. Uh, the world is perfect the way it is. And so that this means that every successive world is going to emerge just like the one that had preceded it. Um, so worlds repeat infinitely and in infinite sameness. So you and I have had this conversation an infinite number of times before, and we're going to have an, an infinite number of times into the future. Um, each of us has lived this life an infinite number of times, and we'll do this again. So those are the, basically the two um, rival schools of sort of cosmic multiplicity that get going in the ancient world, the kind of spatial multiplicity of the atomists, the temporal multiplicity of the Stoics. Plato does everything he can to insist that our world is the only possible world. Why does he want to do this? Because he hates the idea of the universe or the world um, ending, unraveling in any way. And, and so he, in the Timaeus, Plato, um, insists that the world must be singular um, because the, uh, and he does it by appealing to an extra cosmic creator. He's got a demiurge um, who doesn't create out of nothing, but he creates. Um, and the demiurge makes the earth in such a way uh, that it will never dissolve because it is internally perfect and there are no worlds out there beside it to um, to unravel it or to cause it uh, to, to decay. Uh, Aristotle, of course, thinks that Plato has the right idea in terms of just having one, one world, but that he can't prove it. So Aristotle comes up with different ways to prove that the universe has to be singular. But from, you know, Plato and Aristotle on, do the dominant cosmological trend in the West is going to insist that this be the only universe. Now, that that stays the, the standard for several hundred years. And you, you jump uh, next to Thomas Aquinas, who is positing uh, in one of his works, he says, it seems that there is not one world, but many. And uh, so why, why is he asking this question? Wasn't this debate over a long time ago? What, what's happening and, and how is he responding to this, this idea of multiple world cosmologies? Right. So Thomas, um, Thomas is the product, as you know, of a uh, sort of Latin uh, rediscovery of uh, the works of Aristotle, which had been preserved in Arabic translation. Um, so when Thomas is saying, it seems that there is not world, that there may not be one world, but many, um, he is responding to the texts to which Aristotle is responding, the kinds of arguments to which Aristotle is responding. Um, of course, this is the scholastic style, so we can, you know, just by the form of the question, we know that the very idea of many worlds would be absolutely insane to Thomas Aquinas, just because of the place he puts it in his question. Um, but uh, yeah, Thomas is basically the last, is this right? I think this is right. Thomas is the last major Christian intellectual to insist that the world has to be singular. Um, Augustine before him has this hilarious um, refutation of the Stoics in the city of God. I mean, it would be hilarious if it weren't so desperate, but um, <laughs> so there's, so, so, um, and Aquinas, so Aquinas really takes it down throughout the, um, throughout the Summa. And what's at stake for Aquinas is actually the singularity of the creator. Thomas hinges the singularity of the universe, of the world, sorry, um, on the singularity of God. Um, he, like, uh, like Aristotle, believed uh, that for each moved, there would have to be a mover. Um, so 
to assert the, the to assert the plurality of the cosmos would be to assert the plurality of God, and this was just absolutely unacceptable, of course, to Thomas. Um, so he goes through a number of uh, sort of neo Aristotelian with a little bit of Augustine in it um, proofs to demonstrate the singularity of the cosmos. Now, of course, what's crazy uh, is that Thomas Aquinas dies in 1274, and that three years later, 1277, um, the condemnations of 1277 are written by Bishop Etienne Tompier of Paris. Uh, there are tons and tons of condemnations. Um, but one of them uh, condemns as heretical the teaching that God could not make more than one world. Um, so all of a sudden, and as, you, as you probably know, Thomas gets uh, posthumously called up on heresy charges. His old teacher has to defend him once he's dead. It's terrible. But anyway, so one of the now heretical positions that Thomas set forward was the the notion that God could not create, could only create one world. Uh, and of course, the theological motivations for that concern the power of God, that to, to assert that God could only create one universe would be to circumscribe God's power. Why, could, why couldn't an infinite God create infinite universes? Wouldn't uh, the power of an infinite God actually be augmented by God's ability to create an infinite number of universes? So it's really, um, Pierre Duhem says that the condemnations of 1277 are actually the kind of birth certificate of modern science, um, because they reopen um, a series of uh, heretofore uh, unimaginable possibilities. And one of them, of course, is the possibility of an infinite number of worlds. And I guess that's a good explanation because this is where we kind of enter murky water for people writing in Christian contexts. And you talk about uh, Nicholas of Cusa and you talk about Giordano right. Bruno um, who right. are starting to think about, you know, how could these multiple world cosmologies fit into, I guess, Christian theologies. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about this, this period after Aquinas and how people are thinking about this? Right. So the period after Aquinas. So Nicholas of Cusa is fascinating. You know, he um, long before Copernicus uh, had the conviction and not so much an observational conviction, but really a theological conviction um, that uh, that nothing. Uh, well, nothing created could be the measure of anything else, that God was the measure of all things. Um, but what this meant was that there could be nothing stable, static, or central in the created universe. Um, with Cusa, we start getting more sort of universe language. Um, so Cusa has this idea that the Earth, again, before way before Copernicus, that the Earth is not at the center of the universe. Um, of course, the, the, the dominant model before, uh, well, what we hear is before Copernicus had been the Ptolemaic model, which is sort of infused uh, Aristotelianism, the idea that the Earth is at the center, right? And then the planets and fixed stars um, and sun all revolve around the Earth. Um, Nicholas of Cusa says, no, 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 the Earth's not at the center of the universe. As we know, Copernicus is going to say this about 100 years later, that the sun is at the center of the universe. Nicholas actually says nothing is at the center of the universe. Nothing is the center. He says wherever you are in the universe, you can call that the center if you want. Um, but the universe is actually, the word he uses is boundless. It's unbounded. Um, he won't quite say it's infinite for uh, reasons that will become clear in a minute. But the universe is boundless. So there's no center and there's no periphery. Rather, the center is every, anywhere you happen to find yourself. Um, and the periphery is 
the bounds of uh, whatever you can see. Um, so, so again, Nicholas was careful to say that the universe was uh, boundless. Um, it had what he called a contracted infinity, um, whereas God, uh, he called infinite. God was uncontracted infinity. Um, so the universe is not quite infinite because it depends for its being at every point um, on its creator, whereas God depends on nothing. So God is a kind of uncontracted infinity. Um, but for Nicholas, the, 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 we, there would be no – basically the whole – universe is in the image of God for Cusa, in, in at least de adopt ignorantia. He, he opens past the um, primacy of the human as the imago dei, and he says, no, no, the, the, the universe is in the image of God. And insofar as the universe is in the image of God, the universe itself couldn't be bound by anything outside itself. So the universe, like God, is, is boundless. Um, fascinatingly, um, sort of pre-modern, um, post-modern, pre-modern cosmology there in Nicholas. Um, now, what Giordano Bruno does uh, now after Copernicus is he basically takes cues in cosmology and like turns up the volume, um, which is to say he proclaims that the universe is infinite. It's just infinite. It's not contractedly infinite. It's not boundless. It's infinite, just like God. Um, for Bruno, the universe is the unmediated, direct um, eternal, actually, outpouring of its infinite God. And it would be actually a, a, an absolute insult um, to call the universe anything less than fully infinite. It would be an insult to God to call God's creation anything less than infinite. So for, um, for Bruno, we have this infinite universe filled with um, innumerable worlds, with an infinite number of worlds. Um, so I would say, you know, Bruno is the first... Um, sort of early modern, like just on the brink of modernity, uh, multiverse theorists, actually. Um, and of course, Cusa and Bruno with these, you know, fascinatingly similar cosmologies, Bruno actually takes a lot out of Nicholas, um, but he thinks that he wasn't quite bold enough. Um, they have very, very widely, wildly different fates. You know, uh, Nicholas is made into a cardinal of the church, whereas Bruno is burned at the stake uh, in 1600, becoming um, a kind of martyr for the uh, for the new science. Um, right, he then gets uh, drawn into that to that line that stretches uh, through Copernicus, uh, both through Copernicus before him, through Galileo after him. Um, but but again. What's interesting is that Bruno's arguments had been primarily theologically motivated, right? They were not observationally motivated. He was trying to make an argument about um, the being of God and what the universe God created would have to look like in order to do justice to the infinity of, of divinity. Great. Now, you, you move on to the 17th century, which becomes, um, I guess, critical because we have uh, Galileo's kind of uh, discoveries of this, uh, you know, telescopically viewed world that can be observed. Um, and we have a lot of people then arguing for a singular universe, but we also have this rather widespread, um, you know, theories of, of, of multiple world cosmologies going on with very important people like Descartes and Kant. Um, could you talk a little bit about this contradiction? We have this 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 new observable data, which perhaps could, at the time, be seen as evidence for singular world, um, but we still have people thinking very critically about these multiple worlds. Right. So um, this is where I think the sort of um, 
fairly common, perhaps knee-jerk criticism of Christian theology as being anti-imaginative and anti-scientific, um, anti-rational, anti-whatever, um, becomes a little bit unhelpful. Um, because what happens in the 17th century is that with the development, so of course you can you can focus on Bruno and say, you know, ah, oh, the church executed Bruno, uh, the church hates the truth, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? And then, of course, the house arrested Galileo and all the rest of it. Um, but interestingly, um, it's not in the 17th century, it is not the case that um, so, the church is somehow reigning science in um, and, and restraining it from, from blossoming. Rather, science is, is restraining itself. Um, so with the de- development of the telescope, which, of course, extends our vision, beyond um, well, beyond the Earth, right, to other uh, cosmic bodies. With the development of the telescope and the sort of extension of vision, we actually also get a kind of contraction of imagination in um, what turns out to be observational astronomy. So the question of the possibility of um, multiple worlds becomes first in the sort of emergent scientific literature, first confined to questions about, like, whether there's life on other planets, uh, whether there's life on the moon or on Jupiter or on Venus. Um, Kepler has some fascinating uh, possibilities about the uh, imagining about the uh, the possibility of inhabitants on other planets. Um, But our sense of what world is becomes severely delimited. So rather than being, you know, vastly other world, they're just, just other planets. So, so again, with the, expansion of vision with a telescope, our sort of imaginative vision is getting constrained. Um, and by the time that we get to Newton, um, Newton really is not concerned with the possibility of other worlds at all. Um, he, like uh, sort of a emerging throng of new scientists, are arguing that we really need to confine our vision to our vision, to the, the world we can measure and see. Um, and this strangely frees up the you know the philosophers and the theologians even um, after the mid 17th century when the sort of church loses its power over such things um, to start thinking about the possibility of uh, multiple worlds again um, and you get this explosion in the mid to late 17th century of multiple worlds cosmologies um, most of which are building off the uh, vortex cosmology of Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes can really be seen as he can in everything as the kind of intersection of all these disciplines. He's in that funny crossover between what would become science, philosophy, theology, mathematics, optics, right, as separate disciplines and kind of does it all at once. So his is like the last great proto-scientific cosmology and cosmogony. But the people who are writing Cartesian dreams about infinite universes are themselves more in the sort of literary and philosophical and even theological camps. So you know, it's a crossover, right, in the 17th century where science is all of a sudden becoming very conservative, deeply restrained to the world that it can measure and see. Um, And the non-scientific sort of humanities, and so uh, the humanities really, are sort of set free to imagine um, other possible worlds. Great. Now, the the final section of the book, you really kind of take us through a, a world tour of contemporary uh, multiple world cosmologies, uh, some of the factors that gave rise to these, why people are starting to think about these in the in the twentieth century and then into today. Um, 
perhaps we can leave the details of those to people and they will force them to go out and buy the book. Um, but could you talk a, a little bit, I mean, you've kind of been hinting at it throughout the conversation, but, um, why is there, uh, so many, right? You mentioned tens and even maybe hundreds of different ideas about this. Um, why is this so important now? Why is it being taken seriously as a scientific theories where, uh, you know, people like Plato, Descartes, these, these are often uh, thought of as philosophies, right? So why is this now thought of as science, right? Why are scientists thinking about this? Right. Um, so again, uh, I think the, 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 the kind of central answer, um, at least the central working answer is um, that physics needs an answer to the fine tunings of the universe, right? And finds the only compelling non-theological answer um, in the multiverse. And of course, it's not clear to me that the multiverse is non-theological, but to the extent that it doesn't appeal to an extra cosmic humanoid creator, um, the multiverse can be seen as non-theistic um, and is the only uh, only possible answer. Um, but yes, as you're saying, right there there are tons of sort of rival models of the multiverse. Um, the the uh, dominant model of the multiverse uh, is called uh, the inflationary multiverse, coming out of the inflationary co- uh, cosmology. Um, that again, yes, you can read more about. Um, I won't I won't bore anybody with it right now. Um, but um, a lot of the rivals to the inflationary universe um, or the inflationary multiverse will claim aesthetic distaste for the scenario. They'll say, I hate it. I hate the idea that there are an infinite number of universes being bubbled out for no reason haphazardly and all this empty space is being, it's just gross. Um, And I've tried to track some of the sort of aesthetic and even existential revulsion at the possibilities that the dominant scenario presents. Um, And so these theorists will try to work within different paradigms, just try to work from a different starting place uh, to produce, uh, to produce different models. Um, now, of course, in terms of the you know, rigors and strictures of observational science, um, the model that will ultimately win out here, if any model ever does win out, is going to be the one that has the most observational evidence. Um, and with the discovery of B-modes, gravitational waves on the cosmic microwave background radiation a few months ago, all of a sudden, you were hearing the inflationary theorists say, ha-ha, all of our rivals are gone. We win. This is it, right? This is, we've found the B modes and this confirms our theory. The multiverse looks the way we say the multiverse looks within 20 hours. All of the rivals were going in and saying, no, no, no. My model also supports that data. My model also supports this story. Um, my, um, so, you know, you could just see this as sort of turf warfare, right? The people in loop quantum gravity are trying to keep their discipline safe and the people in string theory are trying to keep their discipline safe from the people who are, you know, just straightforward cosmology. You could see, that, see it that way. And I guess that there is there's some sort of turf war going on and there is certainly competition for financing and for funding and all of the rest of it. Um, but I think the bigger, at least the more compelling answer to why there are so many rival models of the multiverse is that again we're dealing 
necessarily with that which lies beyond our ability to measure, observe, or see it clearly at all. Um, so there is going to be no definitive way um, to account for that which we cannot define. That's just, I mean, it, it, right? There, there are going to have to be multiple models of the immeasurable, um, the not quite visible, the not quite visible. Um, and if we take any kind of lesson from quantum physics, um, what we know is that even the stuff in this world doesn't necessarily give us a straightforward singular answer, the straightforward singular answer that we're looking for. What we know from the double slit experiment is that if you set up an experiment that's going to measure light as a wave, light is a wave. And if you set up an experiment that's going to measure light as a particle, light is a particle. And it's not that you know, light is a half particle and a half wave, or it, it light is a particle under certain conditions and is a wave under other conditions. And those two things, particle being and wave being, are totally incompatible with one another. And yet you get di totally different results based on the kind of experiment you set up. I have a sense that the multiverse works sort of similarly, um, that the answer you get about the way the, the way that, the answer you get to the question, what is all that is? will take on the parameters of the question that you ask and the means you have for investigating it. So if you're going at it with loop quantum gravity, you're going to get the loop quantum gravity answer. And if you go at it with string theory, you're going to get a string theory answer. And if you go at it with, you know, evangelical multiverse commitments, which there are, you're going to get an evangelical multiverse. All right. So, so um, the, 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 again, the answers that we get are going to depend upon the shape of the questions that we're asking. Mary Jane, thanks so much. You, we've, we've talked for a while and I uh, appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the book that perhaps we didn't get to address yet? Oh my goodness. Um, the only thing <laughs> there, I want There's to lots, but perhaps <laughs> something you want to let listeners know about. Um, yeah. Oh gosh. Two things. One, Immanuel Kant is more exciting than you think he is. Um, when he's <laughs> in his early thirties, he has this gorgeous sort of multiversal musing that he then has to disavow uh, radically when he's older and more sober. Um, but it's really worth a trek through the Kantian multiverse. Um, totally unexpected, really exciting. Um, and the other, of course, um, is the very serious possibility um, that we could be living in some kind of computer simulation, right? Um, and that these things that we think are just mediating, for example, the conversation that you and I are having right now are actually the generators of the universe that we believe that we're in. Great. Could you, could you let us a little, uh, know a little bit about what you're working on now, perhaps things you have coming out in the future? I'm sure listeners would be very excited to, to read more of your work. Sure. Um, so I think for me, the, the big, uh, the question that came up throughout this book, the frustration, the sort of meta frustration throughout this book um, that came up for me was the um, stalemate that so many conversations uh, between religion and science tend to hit um, because they are duking it out over the existence or non-existence of an extra cosmic, all-powerful, male, humanoid, father-like creator. Um, and it seems to me that if you start from that guy, you're going to have a really dissatisfying and often comically ridiculous conversation. Um, and that there are, not only is, you know, that kind of theism 
um, scientifically useless. It's also theologically inappropriate and totally uninteresting, right? And there are, there are theologies that have been in operation for centuries and centuries um, that uh, do not posit that kind of static, self-identical, humanoid creator out in the sky. Um, that having been said, the range of what's sort of acceptable theology um, is, is, is an interesting one to track. Um, so what I, I've begun to look at um, are different ways of configuring a sort of divine and creative principle uh, as internal to the cosmos. Um, and of course, the, the um, limit point there, at least for the Western tradition, is what's known as pantheism, which is to say the identification of God and the universe, um, arguably the thing that got Giordano Bruno executed in 1600. Um, pantheism is like the unassimilable uh, category within the Western canon. And I'm trying to figure out why, why it is that that position um, is so demonized, so feminized, uh, so primitivized, uh, what's, so, what's so dangerous about pantheism. So that's, that's where I'm headed next. Great. Sounds really interesting. Perhaps you can join us again when, the, when that comes out. I would love to. Well, thanks again, Mary Jane. We really appreciate your time and appreciate you writing this very beautifully written and uh, beautifully designed, I must say, too, uh, book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mary Jane Rubenstein about her great new book, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, published with Columbia University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.